This is Recruiting Daily's Recruiting Live podcast, where we look at the strategies behind the world's best talent acquisition teams. We talk recruiting, sourcing, and talent acquisition. Each week, we take one overcomplicated topic and break it down so that your three-year-old can understand it. Make sense? Are you ready to take your game to the next level? You're at the right spot. You're now entering the mind of a hustler. Here's your host, William Tincup. Ladies and gentlemen, this is William Tincup, and you're listening to the Recruiting Daily Podcast. Terry Ivano on from SoFi. And our discussion or our topic today is bias mitigation strategies and tactics. Can't wait to talk to Anna about this. So without any further ado, uh, Anna, or <clears throat> excuse me, Anna, um, A, make sure I pronounce your name correctly. B, introduce both yourself and SoFi. Hi, William. So great to be here. My name is Anna Riccio, and I am the Senior Vice President of Talent at SoFi, which is a very fancy way of saying that uh, my team and I, we oversee talent acquisition, we oversee employee experience, learning and development, and my favorite, which is diversity, equity, and inclusion. Oh, very cool. So, um, and SoFi, as if, if anybody doesn't know what SoFi does, we will just tell them. SoFi does personal wealth management. So this is a online platform where you can get your money right. So everything from your personal banking to investments to financial planning, as well as retirement or um, college planning. So everything in one, in one platform, one-stop shopping. I love it. So bias mitigation strategies and tactics, you've obviously seen this uh, from a lot of different levels. Um, let's start with just bias and the, the things that you've, you're seeing today in biases. And so we paint the picture for, for the audience of can just, okay, so here's some biases that you might not be aware of. Here's some things that are going on in the workplace. Uh, like one of my favorites is online degrees versus offline degrees or you know, traditional universities that people don't realize that they have these biases against one or, or for the other uh, in, both, in both directions, right? So what are you seeing in terms of biases? Uh, we see all sorts of biases. We see biases um, predominantly in there's an assumption that if you've worked at a you know, marquee name company, that you somehow are going to um, understand scale or that you're going to be able to develop faster or contribute faster because you've seen what you know a larger established company, how they may have operationalized something. But uh, there's obviously you know some failure in that insight in that many of the individuals who join these companies once they're established, they weren't there for the development of these practices. So they have the benefit of working in these environments, but they don't necessarily have the benefits of knowing how those structures were built. And yet you see time and time again, you know, I'll see, like you say, I only want people from you know, these five companies um, because they assume that those skills are inherent as a result of being part of those companies. I love that because that's the, uh, the hot, comedy, hot, hot company bias. Yeah. Uh, and it could be, you know, Google, Facebook, you know, whatever, uh, whatever the hot company is that day. I love that you, you mentioned scale, but it's also that they somehow, it's almost like how we look at some of the, you know, great schools in the world, uh, the London School of Economics, Harvard, whatever, whatever it may be in the bias for and against. I mean, it actually kind of cuts both ways, right? 
uh, it's just like, give me anyone, but someone that's been to Harvard. It's like, wait a minute. <laughs> well, that's, that's the same. I mean, it's not the same bias. It's a bias, but it's like, well, you know, there's good people that went to, that attended Harvard as well. You know, of course, of course, you know, it's funny where well, we saw it. Um, and I've, I've done this now at a couple of companies is there's an assumption that, um, you know, they might have, the individuals have to have like, you know, enterprise experience, for example. Mm-hmm. And what the way it manifested is I would have re- recruiters come to me and say, you know, um, they, these 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 executives only want to see people with these profiles. Yet I know that I'm bringing them really talented people who have the skills. And so I, I in essence, ask them. So how do you know they're not right? Like, how do we know that maybe hiring people from these marquee companies truly does yield a better a better hire, a better enterprise hire, right? And so we we started this incredible arduous task of really assessing, you know, who were the top 100 salespeople in the organization? Like, who were they? Where did they come from? What was their background? And, you know, this took a long time, you know, well right. over a year of analysis, because how do you even determine what, what great looks like, right? And so, you know, there was all sorts of variables that we had to keep in mind, you know, across the globe. But we came away with that all top 100, um, you know, had three things in common. Well, first, I have to tell you that um, out of the top 100, uh, 66% of them, which is, you know, two thirds of them did not have any prior enterprise experience. <laughs> Astonishing, right? Yeah. You, you taught know? them, you, you essentially, so by you taught them enterprise experience. That, that's exactly right. That's wow. exactly right. And so what the common denominator was, and this was really enlightening, it was individuals who had come from a monthly cadence of, of basically a monthly quota instead of, you know, a, a quarterly or a yearly one. Um, it was individuals who, you know, understand the practices who had been users of, of, of the systems. Um, so they necessarily have to have sold it before, but they have had to work in these environments where they've used these systems before. And it was individuals who had been trained um, in solution selling in, in, that, in that type of, of, of basically of that, of that approach. And so once we had this empirically like set up, then it allowed us to really establish competencies and then to go back to the business and say, you know, I know you want, I know you think that you're going to hire somebody, you know, better if they come from these companies. Right. But the truth is that these are the success attributes. Now I got to tell you, like William, people weren't lining up saying, you, you know, I've seen the light. <laughs> you're right. <Yeah. laughs> They're trying to figure out how wrong you are. Yes. A thousand percent. Right. They're like, absolutely not. Still get me this. So we had to get, you know, a few, a few brave souls that were willing, willing to try, you know, our approach. But what it did is our recruiters were able to now assess, you know, based on different criteria. And it really did broaden, and you hear recruiters talk about this all the time, it just broadened the aperture. We know we were no longer bound by having to go fish at these you know, same three mm-hmm. ponds that everyone else is fishing. And of course, we brought in great people. And I mean, I can go on and on and on about how we start to really prove the quality of hire around this, because what we started doing is, you know, six months after these people had started, first of all, once we knew, we knew their assessment we, and, we, and we knew you know, where their strengths were, we were then able to proactively help them and train them, you know, right away in areas that we knew that there was deficiencies in. So that, that in of itself, just understanding the competencies was super enlightening to be able to provide, you know, great onboarding experience. But then six months later, we were able to ask them, 
how are you doing? Where do you need more help? And we were able to ask their hiring managers, like, do you feel like you've made like a good decision here? And how, how's this person doing? And it was night and day in terms of the experience. I mean, that's where we really had able to, were able to prove the model. Um, and so I'm, I'm a huge, I'm, I mean, no doubt does, um, you know, do we see incredible bias, but you know, the way to mitigate it for us was really getting back to this sort of these competency assessments. Which, you know, gets us to a number of different things. First, first it gets you to data. So yeah. it's not an opinion. And, in, and thus, you know, it's not my opinion, your opinion, his opinion, her opinion, et cetera. You're, you're looking at the data of what works in your organization. So specifically in different parts of your organization, so you can carve it out and say, here's the DNA of what works here for us and what success looks like. And it levels a playing field. What I love about this is it just basically, it doesn't matter if they have a degree or don't have a degree or went to the University of Michigan or male, female, trans, this, that, the other. It's just like, here's, here's the competencies or the skills that we need from, uh, from these folks. This is what success looks like. So I love it on so many levels. The, the hardest folks to kind of retrain is probably not the right way of saying it, but just kind of get them to reimagine um how this looks like it was it uh and has it been hiring managers sourcers recruiters executives like i know it's i kind of you want to say all but uh like what was the what was the hardest to kind of convey of this data-driven competency-driven kind of model i honestly think it's hiring managers because you know they're the ones that are on the front lines right of, the, of these right. decisions and they're the ones who you know they have limited headcount and yeah, so they want, to hire, they want to hire, they want to hire the Messiah. I mean, they want to bring on like, you know, <laughs> Jesus Christ of Bill, like that's the one I want to hire. And so we, we they wanted him yesterday, by the way, just and, if you course, <laughs> and you better walk on water. Let me just tell you right now. We can't wait for miracles. We need the miracles to start like day, you know, today. week one. Sorry. And so they, 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 they want they, into their minds, like the assurance of, Somebody with that pedigree, as you talked about, you know, from that great marquee school, and then of course, you know, reinforced by these great marquee companies. It, what they fail in missing is the critical thinking aspect. Is obviously, if you went to these marquee schools, like you're clearly very bright, but that, that's not the only you know determinator to being intelligent. Right. And and no doubt, you know, like I mentioned before, a lot of these companies they've already the innovation is not being done, you know, at this level. And these engines are really well established long, long, long before these individuals, you know, arrived and contributed. Where we really find that there's a difficult barrier to entry is that those early career seeker roles. Yep. You know, if you're if you're senior and you, you have a track record, you know, obviously like you're able to speak to your experience and really substantiate your experience, you know, which again, I think does does address some 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 bias, but if you're early on in your career and, you know, perhaps you, you, you don't have a four-year degree um, or if you do, it's not from one of these fancy, you know, marquee Ivy League schools, then how do you differentiate your background? And then that's where it really does become super biased because it becomes about like who you know, who, who you know, who, who can get, get you in the door. Um, it, it really is, there's no way to really differentiate your experience versus somebody else's unless you're kind of going back to this competency-based interviewing mm-hmm. assessments. It's, um, inter- it's interesting that you mentioned, sorry to interrupt, Anna, the, uh, with hiring managers. This is one of the tricks that I've, I've recently uh, established with hiring managers is to not use the word bias. 
So hear me out. And then, and then of course, yeah, shoot sorry, it all down. Tell me more about this. <laughs> so so uh, I've eradicated bias from my lexicon. Okay. And when I talk to hiring managers, I say, well, you have a preference. And preference some re- somehow, mm-hmm. I mean, it's a synonym, uh, but preference somehow makes it seem like, oh, yeah, well, you know, yeah, I, I have a preference for Mexican food or Tex-Mex. Mm-hmm. You know, it doesn't seem near as, uh, as weighted. Yeah, it's yeah, bias. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like loaded yeah. bias, like, oh my God, you're a racist. You know, <clears throat> but 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 preference, it's somehow pal- it's the same stuff, the exact same stuff. It's just packaged differently. So yeah. so uh I wonder, you know, what's your take on that? A and B, uh uh I, I had hiring managers already asterisks before I asked the question. Because <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's been my struggle as well. <laughs> I love the word preference because it's it's much softer, of course. But at the end of the day, though, I mean, if your preference is still yes. when marquee name companies, we have we're still back to square one. You know? No, it's it's just getting emotionally and intellectually over to this place of trying uh, the competency model and trying data driven uh, recruiting decisions versus kind of uh, non. Uh, if we'll say that, I I love that y'all put them on a learning path. Well, that's and that's right. a part of it, right? Yeah. So you figure out what you do have and why that's going to make sense as it relates to the DNA. And then you say, okay, well, let's round out the things that 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 you don't have. Let's get you on this career path or upskilling, et cetera. Let's get you on these on these paths to learn. Where does, for y'all, where does soft skills fit into some of this, especially on the upskilling side? Well, that's, that's a totally part of the assessment, the competencies, right? Mm. So if the soft skills are, you know, effective communication or sense of urgency or um, ability, you know, to, to truly, to truly problem solve, you could build assessments that, you know, that again, that you, that you could literally, you know, test people for. And so by, by doing this, you have a good idea. And I'm just going to give an example of like a call center if you need an individual who is really good at diffusing, you know, like, like right. hot, 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 hot situations, you know, then you, you, you can assess or, you know, is this person great at, at taking the charge, you know, out of an emotional conversation and you could assess for that. And, and you could also sort of train for that, which is really important. I think the problem is that we often let our hiring managers dictate these job descriptions and these job descriptions aren't <sighs> anchored back to what is actually the success criteria of required in the role. Right. And so we end up interviewing, you know, kind of based on what we think we need or what we mm-hmm. are, see in ourselves. Or it's, it's literally with other biases, like the last person that did the job. And that's exactly right. Right. So it's, it's like Jane did the job. She was fantastic. Jane's moved on. Let's hire another Jane. It's like, well, wait a minute. <laughs> what skills did Jane have? <laughs> Why don't we look at that? Um, go you ahead. Raise raise a, your thought. Oh, you raised such a good point here because you're exactly right. People want to hire what the incumbent last had, but what they don't right. ask themselves is why did the incumbent leave? Right. Oh, I didn't even think of that. That's great. Oh, yes. That's like my hot one. Cause I'll say, okay, going back to the example of Jane. Well, you know, Jane left because she wasn't learning because you hired somebody who's done the exact same job somewhere else and they've come back and all they're doing is recreating what they've already known, but they haven't had a chance to actually apply an influence and you haven't given them a chance to really spark curiosity. And in our environment, what worked you know, at their former company may not always work at ours. 
So again, it kind of goes back to like, why are people leaving your organization? Mm. I have found, and I have implemented competency-based interviewing at three companies. I interviewed, I did this at Yahoo. I did it at Salesforce um, and Salesforce globally. And then of course we're doing it at SoFi now. And we have found that for the groups that have adopted, um, not only, you know, are we mitigating bias or we are, we're, we're flushing out preference as, 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 as I've learned from you today. <laughs> <laughs> we are aligning on preference. Stolen. <laughs> That's going to be my new way of positioning that. But people are staying longer. They're staying longer. Yeah, that's always going to ask you the relationship with retention. Right? Because now we can develop them. Now we are teaching them something. Now we are refining skills that we knew from the very beginning that they're going to need. And so which, it really does change the relationship. Which makes sense because that's also what folks want when they're when they're coming into a job. They want someone that's going to invest in them. They want someone that that, that cares about like upskilling and uh, and and uh, internal mobility. So like you're hitting some of the things that that candidates today already care about. But now instead of after onboarding and dealing with it after then, it's like we can bring we can pull all that stuff into into talent acquisition and have those discussions right away. Um, a couple, a couple quick questions. One is, is uh, as we as we think about it, a competency-based assessments. Do y'all build your? You're big enough to where you could have your own IO psychology, you know, team and all that other stuff. So you probably do. But do you build your own assessments, or do you, or do you buy things that are that are already readily available out there? We've, I've done both. I've done both. And I, in full disclosure, I'm also on the board of a criteria that also does um, assessment uh, yeah, based, of course. Uh, based skill assessment. So um, at SoFi, we are adopting a criteria because frankly, you know, they've already done it. So yeah. yeah. Why, re- why reinvent the wheel? Right. And if you, I mean, if you can't afford, you know, like, you know, the psychologist and the, the whole nine yards to do all, you know, to, to do all the capabilities, then to what's the advantage of a criteria is that they've already done this work for you. And they can tell you again, empirically, not just in your company, but across the industry, you know, what are the right competencies and skills that you should be assessing against for these core roles in your organization. What we have done is we've adopted criteria, which is fantastic, but then now we're taking that a step further. We're doing self-assessments internally that now are determining our leadership attributes that oh, we nice. are training against, which is fantastic. So I could now take, you know, my, my leaders and in, in my managers and executives in the company and say, hey, these are 22 areas that we think develop great leaders. Let's see how you're doing against them. And then let's develop a personal path for you that, that we now can basically create this journey. So that, again, that investment is there and that people feel like there's a plan, there's a vision. And ultimately, that's what breeds trust, right? And your employer is like, you feel like, okay, they're, they're making an investment in me. What so I love about that is you're, you're taking a competency-based model. And, and instead of it just being housed in one part of the, you know, the people operation, you've basically said, we're going to hire to it. We're going to promote to it. We're going to fire to it. We're going to do all train to it. You're going to do everything related to this competency model. And that goes all the way to job descriptions. It goes to everything. It, it infiltrates every aspect of HR and people operations so that, you know, again, and, and you can change these things, but I love the proliferation of using a great competency model. And then it goes everywhere. It travels around the organization so that everyone gets it. When we build a job description, before we build it, 
We don't go to, go to Indeed and rip one off of somebody else's that kind of looks like a position that's similar. We go and build it. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I'm guilty. My heads are, my hands are bloody like, here. My hands are bloody. Me too. I'm like, oh, that, looks, that sounds like us. Okay, we'll go that's, with that one. That sounds like something <laughs> I've done twice, at least today. Um, I, really quickly, just because uh, I know people are going to ask, where do you, on the town acquisition side, where do you add your assessments in terms of funnel? Do you put, especially competency-based funnels, uh, competency-based hiring, do you put them further out and get less candidates or do you bring them further in? And and just, I'm more curious than anything else. We do them, um, we do them right at the very beginning. So of course, right, it's 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 a very passive market. So we talk, our sourcers talk to our candidates, our recruiters. Um, We tell them about the organization, about our philosophy. Right about why this is important and why this becomes such a major investment in them, you know, in terms of our employer brand and our, our proposition back to them. So people understand that we're not necessarily trying to screen them out, right. that, that what we're trying to do is get a better understanding of their strengths so that we can truly find a job that they're going to stay at, you know, in the long term. And so then we introduce the assessments. Um, and then we come back and we give them the results. So there's oh. a personality piece. So again, it turns into like a coaching thing, right? So you don't just take this assessment and then it becomes a black hole. You actually get to learn a little bit about yourself and about where you know you should be, you know, where you shine the brightest, and maybe some areas that uh, you might want to think about and um, making some personal investments in. Oh, the job or not. I love it. Drops mic, walks off stage. Anna, thank you so much for your time today and your wisdom. I absolutely appreciate it. It's just such a great topic to explore and y'all are doing some great work. So thank you. Oh, anytime, William. I had so much fun. I'd love to talk to you about it more sometime. Thank you. Absolutely. And thanks for everyone listening to the Recruiting Daily Podcast. Until next time. You've been listening to the Recruiting Live Podcast by Recruiting Daily. Check out the latest industry podcasts, webinars, articles, and news at Recruiting.